Happy Monday to what you up? all this morning. We're in week 11 of 15, y'all. Week 11 of 15, we're stalling out on our phrase, in the creed, his only son. We're doing it for two weeks because we just got to talk about Jesus more. You can't talk about Jesus less. No. You have to talk Jesus about Jesus more. Yes. You were especially interested in the students' drawings that they made from our reaction yes. paper on Friday. What did you think about those? You all are amazing artists. Um, Some of many, ma many of, you. of you are amazing artists. Some of you <laughs> are amazing artists. We appreciated every every drawing um, in its own way. But I just want to give a <laughs> shout out to you all who are really skilled and talented. It was actually that was my funnest set of reaction papers. I mean, personally, I really enjoyed it. So thank you so much. Thank yeah. you for your good work. And I may be emailing a few of you just to see if we can keep a couple of those and maybe show them to, to prospective students. We could have a museum of Theo art. Yes. Do you know, I used to, this is apropos of nothing. This is just free on a Monday morning. I used to live in a city that in this city, it was called Somerville, Massachusetts. They actually had a museum of bad art. And it was wow. like the worst, weirdest paintings that were ever submitted to them. And it's online actually, and it's super hilarious. The Museum of Bad Art, if you Google it after class, you can enjoy a place where I once was in person wow. to see horrible artwork. My stuff could go there for sure. Speaking yeah. of our class, however, and turning the topic slightly, um, we're thinking about Jesus as being God's son again this week. And we thought it might be worthwhile just to say a few things about, like, what does it, I, what does it mean? Like, when you think of this phrase, Dr. Payne, God's yeah. son, like, is this... God has, a, God has a baby? God has a son? Like, how in the world can that possibly well, work? Well, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves because we're definitely going to be talking about the, the baby Jesus mm. um, in the future, oh, right. in the semester. But I'd like to turn that question back to you first because you are a Hebrew Bible scholar, scholar of the Old Testament. How, how is the, the idea of God having a son depicted in ancient Near Eastern yeah. texts? Well, the first thing that comes to my mind when I think about divine sonship in terms of the ancient Near Eastern world and, and, the, and the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, is this idea of a king. Like the language of sonship is royal language. It's king language. For example, in ancient Egypt, the pharaoh was a, 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 the king, the ruler of the country, but was also considered not just a really like a member of the divine family, but actually himself divine. Pharaoh was divine. And you could actually think of the Exodus story and the plagues as being like a battle between gods. Like God is, is destroying this country because he's having a battle for his son, Israel. And he actually calls Israel his son in the Old Testament. In the Mesopotamian world more broadly, sometimes kings would take on divine attributes, not often, but the king was in a special relationship to God. And so when I think of the Old Testament, I think about two chapters in particular, Psalm chapter 2, which was actually part of our reading last week, right? Did people read Psalm chapter 2? It's a good chapter Everyone of the Psalms. Did. Everyone did. Um, but also 2 Samuel chapter 7. In these two chapters, we see the language of sonship, of being a son, applied to a king. Psalm 2 says, um, you have become my son this day. Today I have begotten you. And it's like, who is this author talking about? And for Christians, that language is certainly about Jesus. But in its, in its, in its granular historical context, this is probably about the king. A king like King David, a famous king in the Old Testament. And that's where 2 Samuel 7 comes into play. The language there is about um, David's son, Solomon. And God says to David, you're going to have a child, and this child is going to be like my son. I'm going to be like a father to him, and he's going to be like my son. So this language of the king, uh, uh, of being a son of God, is royal language that then is taken up in the New Testament for Jesus. So it has a background in kingship. Yeah, and it's, it's great that you bring up David right away because David is a character 
from the Old Testament that Jesus is often compared to, and that's somebody that in the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament, they really picked up on this idea that Jesus was in some way like David. One of the things that I think is really interesting about the, the way that Christians talk about Jesus as the Son of God is, in a way, this title, Son of God, is almost like a secular term applied to Jesus. And by that I mean the idea of uh, Jesus as a son of God in the first century in the context that he was born in, that was a term that was applied by um, the king, basically for all intents and purposes, the king of the, the known world, um, the uh, Caesar, what that term was applied to himself. So the role, the person of, or the the office of Caesar, um, was originally like a, a political term that as time went on, Caesars uh, began to think of themselves as not just the most powerful person in the known world, but maybe a divine person. Mm-hmm. And so Caesar, this, this idea of, um, it, it would be sort of like the president of the world um, referring to themselves as not just uh, the leader of uh, the, the largest political operation, but also someone who was divinely chosen by God, in fact, a son of God. So for Jesus to call himself, or to be referred to as a son of God, and for Christians to refer to him in that way is basically saying mm. not only is he this person who God has um, given this, this role of sonship, but also he is saying, uh, Christians are saying, Jesus is the true king. Jesus is the true inheritor of this world. So Arch- kind of profound. Archaeologists have also found a lot of Roman coinage. Like you can find a lot of coins from the first century world of Jesus, and they depict the head, the face of Caesar, and they have this abbreviation, D-I-V-I-F, Divif, it looks like, but it's for something like Divifilius, son of God, divine son. I mean, imagine living in a world like that where the very money you handle has the face of a human ruler and says son of God on it. And imagine in that context proclaiming. You're saying no. You're saying saying, no, 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 no. Jesus actually is the son of God. So we're going to continue talking about this sonship language and we'll recite our creed um, in a minute. But first, we must introduce our speaker for today. Yes, we're really, really excited to introduce Dr. Sungu Yang to you. He, is, uh, he has a Ph.D. from Vanderbilt University, my alma mater as well, go doors. Um, he also has a master's degree from Emory and Yale. I He's like a collector of prestigious degrees, yes, basically. Yes, he <laughs> is. And he is a homiletician. This is a new, um, uh, a, a, a new ex- set of expertise that we are presenting to you before, um, or we are presenting before you. It's a Monday. Uh, we have biblical scholars, we have historians, and we also have a homiletician, and that just means someone who specializes in preaching, in Christian preaching. Um, he's got a book on, uh, a, a recent book on the preaching of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. that just came out, um, many more books uh, as well. He's a really an outstanding scholar. Uh, he also really likes movies. Yeah. He said, we asked him what movies were his favorite movies beforehand. He said he was really into the Batman franchise. Christopher Nolan. Chris, the Christopher Nolan yeah. ones in particular. There's some yeah. Batman movies that maybe have to be yeah, excluded edited. from that, yeah. from that and uh, category. And also The Godfather. He's really fun to talk with yeah. about that. I love, that's one of his favorite movies. Before okay. we bring him out here, would you recite the creed with us up through the phrase, His Only Son? That's right. I, I believe in God. Please welcome Dr. Sangha Yang.
Morning, morning. What a great morning we are having together in this room every Monday this whole semester. And I believe this field class is one of the best courses we George Fox is offering this academic year. My huge bias. So it's my big blessing to be part of this class, and I hope you are really enjoying this class very much. So once again, it is my huge pleasure and honor to speak before you from this podium. Over the past three months, I believe you have proven yourself that you are very smart, courageous, and hard-thinking freshmen, which all faculty members truly appreciate. And that makes me really happy and honored to speak before you this morning. And besides that, there's more. There's one more reason I'm so happy and honored to stand at this podium and to speak before you all. And the reason is this. This whole class, I mean each and all of you, are so beautiful in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't get me wrong. I'm not standing here to make a mellow, cheesy statement for your sake. But still, when I say it, I truly mean it. I truly believe each and all of you are so beautiful, charming, and even splendid. Because, hear me out very carefully, very important. Because, because Jesus, the Son, has liberated you from all social and spiritual sins and bondages you may have in your life. Now let me repeat the last portion of what I just said. That's very important, and that's the main topic indeed I'll be talking about today. The last portion goes like this. I truly believe you are so beautiful, charming, and even splendid because I know Jesus the Son has liberated you from all social and spiritual bondages you may have in your life. And that's why I find you are so beautiful, charming, and even splendid. And with that said, let's do a quick community activity, which I really like. And I hope you will like this activity as well. So just in a second, you will find one neighbor, either on the right, or on the left, or to the back, to the front. You will find one neighbor, and you're going to say something with me. So please, find one neighbor, one neighbor sitting right next to you. And say this with me, okay? Ready? Neighbor? Oh, my neighbor. You look so beautiful this morning. Because I know Jesus the Son has liberated you. Now turn to another neighbor and say this. Neighbor? Oh, my neighbor. I see something in you. But I don't know what that is. Of course, of course, we all know what that is. That is what Jesus the Son has liberated you from all sins, I mean social and spiritual. And that's why you are so beautiful. And all of you, each and all of you, have Imago Dei, the image of God, and Imitatio Christi, image of Christ, seriously engraved in your body, and so on. Now, my friends, 
With all this said and practiced, I want to explain how Jesus, the Son, the topic of today, Jesus being the Son has truly liberated you from all spiritual and social bondages and sins. Pretty simply, how did he do it? How did he really liberate you? Of course, answering that question is indeed the main goal of my lecture today. And with that goal in my mind, let me narrow down the scope of my lecture a little bit because speaking of all social and spiritual bondages in your life will take several hours and my time is limited. So I'm going to somehow simplify, simplify my lecture topic today so that I can finish my lecture in time. So with that goal in my mind, here are three prime points I'd like to make today. And all these three separate points, I hope, will make one big idea at the end. So here are three points you may want to write down. Point one, patriarchy. You know what that is, right? Patriarchy, the ancient and present days dehumanizing social ideology and bondage must be destroyed for your spiritual and social liberation. That is the first point. Let me repeat that. That's very important for today. Patriarchy, the ancient and present day's dehumanizing social ideology and bondage must die for your spiritual and social liberation. Point two, Jesus the Son, when he dies on the cross, he declares patriarchy to be dead. Simply speaking, Jesus the Son destroys patriarchy on the cross. That is the second point. Third point, as a conclusion, very simply, Jesus the Son has freed you all, each and all of you, from any and all spiritual and social bondages of patriarchy and all other social sins like that. Jesus the Son has freed you. That's the third point or the conclusion of the first two points. So, with that, three points for my prior lecture. Let me begin with the first point. So first point, patriarchy must be destroyed. Now, may I ask, may I ask, what is patriarchy? What definition do you have in your mind? According to the Cambridge Dictionary, there are three possible answers for the definition. First, Patriarchy is a form of social organization in which fathers or other males control the family, clan, tribe, or larger social unit. Or, patriarchy is a society organized in that way. That's the first definition, which I think is somehow mild, moderate, not really critical. So I move on to the second definition of the dictionary. And the second definition is this. Patriarchy is a control by men rather than women, or both by men and women, of most of the power and authority in a society. A little more critical, this second definition, right? But I'm not really satisfied yet. So I move on to the third definition, which is more critical, realistic, and even somehow condemnatory. So the third definition is this. Patriarchy is a society in which the oldest male is the leader of the family or, listen carefully, a society controlled by men in which they use their power to their own 
advantage. Whoa, much more critical, isn't it? Now, having heard all these three somehow interrelated definitions of patriarchy, what do you think? What is your verdict, what judgment on patriarchy? Is it morally okay to still have and practice patriarchy in today's world? Or if you are like me, do you think patriarchy must be destroyed? Because, as I said, it's a dehumanizing, ethically totally wrong, and women and children are abusing corrupt power that endocentric Asian boys created to their own advantage. Now, what is your verdict on patriarchy? This power that degrades women, neglects children, and makes poor guys slaves of the economic system patriarchy. What is your verdict on it? Well, you may ask, Dr. Yang, Dr. Yang, by the way, patriarchy has already died a long time ago. Patriarchy is like a legend that lived a long time ago in the pre-modern world. What are you talking about? In today's post-modern world, you, we, I think we don't see really and practice patriarchy at all. Probably it's already gone. Well, some of you may ask, and some of you may think that way. And I'm not really against it. It's true to some extent. But how about this? How about this? May I give you some real-life examples of patriarchy that's still practiced in our own time? Consider these. How about these? When people say to you, especially girls, you can't play soccer, because you are a girl, that is patriarchy. When people say that you can't vote because you are a girl, that is patriarchy too. And do you remember, until 1920, less than 100 years ago, you women girls couldn't vote because you were not boys. That is patriarchy, you know, practiced in our own time, less than 100 years ago. Now, boys, how about this? When people say to you that you can't become a nurse because you are a boy, I think that is patriarchy. And pe when people say to you, you can cry out loud or shed tears because you are a boy, you have to be strong all the time. When people say to you that, I think that is patriarchy. Indeed, that's okay, fine, and recommended, and very healthy for boys to cry out loud, according to the Association of American Psychologists. It's okay to sob and cry out of joy or suffering. And when people say to you, boys, without plenty of money in your pocket, your life as a boy and man has failed, you, have any, you don't have any real-life value. You are just nobody in this society. When people say that to you, I think that is patriarchy, too. Now, going back to you girls once again, I have a lot more to say for you. When people say that women are too emotional, talky, unphilosophical, and irrational, I think that is patriarchy. When people say to you, you can't run for the presidency of the United States because you're a girl, I think that is patriarchy too. 
And when people say to you, you can't study math or engineering because you're a girl, that is patriarchy. And when people say to you, you must look pretty, thin, and cute, and whatever that means being cute, I think that is patriarchy too. And when people say to you, the child care is the work of women only, not of boys, that is patriarchy too. And when your salary is lower than boys, for the same work you do, same hours, I think that is patriarchy as well. Finally, when people say to you, you are a less human being because you are a girl, I think that is the most corrupt form of patriarchy. And at this point, you girls have to say, Amen. But I'm not hearing. That's interesting. And just one more, just one more, girls. When people say to you that you have to propose, you can't, you can't propose to a boy because you are a girl. The, must, the boy must be the one who proposed to you or the girl. I think that is patriarchy too. Because as far as I remember, my wife proposed to me first. That's how I remember. But she always tells me, no, it was you who proposed to me. That's what boys do. Whenever she says it, I tell her that, sweetheart, darling, that is patriarchy. (laughs) She has to know that. My dear friends of George Fox, what is now your verdict on Patriarchy, that dehumanizing, ethically totally misguided, and women and child abusing, and poor guys exploring corrupt power patriarchy. What is now your verdict on it? In is my humble opinion, patriarchy must die to liberate your soul and my soul and to liberate whole society as well. Somebody was clapping. I really appreciate that. <laughs> now, let me tell you a story of mine to illustrate my point around patriarchy. Indeed, this is my proposed story as a young man about a decade ago. So it was a cold winter, December 2010. Yes, I proposed to my wife. Indeed, it was me. But there is more about it. So I was attending Yale Divinity School as a graduate student in New Haven, and she was a student at Boston University. She came down to New Haven for the winter break, and we were celebrating Christmas Eve together. Yes, Christmas Eve. That is the day when I proposed to my wife. I'm a very romantic guy, as you can imagine. (laughs) I'm romantic. So after a nice dinner in downtown New Haven, I took her to the school's main gate for the Central Library, which is very beautiful, and then holding 100 red roses in my hands. It was 100 roses. You may think, wow, that's so romantic. Yes, it was romantic, but it was not really. I couldn't afford a diamond ring. So that was all I had. Anyway, I finally nailed down and asked, popped a question, Becky, will you marry me? And she said, 
What? <laughs> you are not supposed to say no. <laughs> you already know the answer at the moment, right? After dating. So she said, yes. And in surprise, by the way, I said, really? Are you going to marry me? Such a poor, economically challenged, graduate student? And she said, still, what? Yes, in tears, in tears. Oh, right? And I was, I just don't know what to do in the moment. Why are you crying? This is a celebration. Quite a moment, extraordinary. I was of the moment and so humble. Now, anyway, a couple of years later, I asked her, really, Becky, sweetheart, why did you really say yes and marry me? And she said, okay, honey, I can tell. But can you be really cool and honest about it? Let's be cool about it. Okay, okay, I'm good with that. Now she says, guess what, honey? You are not really a charming person at all. <laughs> she said it. <laughs> Let's be cool about it. You are not really handsome and trendy and fancy stuff at all. Besides, what did you have in your pocket back then? Almost nothing. I believe from a girl's perspective, you are not really an ideal candidate. But still, now hear me out. But still, I married you. You know what? Because I saw something wonderful in you. I saw great potential in you. Of course, at the time, I really didn't know what that was. We were young and reckless and inexperienced, but still, I saw that great potential in you, something amazing in you. And I thought that you really need me to carry out to achieve your hidden values, potential, as well as your vision in Christ to achieve those. I thought you really need me, so I married you. And I thought, wow, wow, this woman really knows me. She truly respects me. She really seriously thinks about me. And more than anything, this woman chose me that I could become a better man and better human being as a boy. And I thought also patriarchy must have died in her mind. She chose me because she believed in me, a humble servant of Christ, which means she didn't choose me because of any patriarchal privileges and power I had. Indeed, I had nothing like them, absolute power, money, authority. I didn't have, but she chose me anyway. In other words, my friends, she took the initiative for genuine love, and she chose to change a man's heart and life for good. That's what I really mean when I say she proposed to me first. Patriarchy must have died in her mind. In the name of the Son, Jesus. Now, with all that said, you may wonder in your mind, Dr. Yang, yes, now at this point, I can see that patriarchy must die right now. Immediately, I like the idea. But how on earth that idea, patriarchy must die, is really relevant to Jesus being the only Son of God? Good question. And that is the second topic I'm going to explore 
from this point on. Jesus, the Son, when he dies on the cross, he declares the ultimate death of all forms of patriarchy. Simply speaking, Jesus, the Son, I believe, destroys patriarchy on the cross. How do I know that? How do I rationalize this argument of mine? And here it is. According to the Bible, Jesus, the second person of God, is the only son of God, right? God has. And who is sent to the earth to die on the cross as a ransom for human sins. And here my emphasis is on Jesus being the only son of God. That's the main topic for us today, right? And also, right, Jesus is not only the only son of God, as a human person, right, Jesus, the son, is the eldest son, the firstborn child of Mary and Joseph, living in the traditional ancient Near Eastern society under the Roman occupation. Now, if you're smart, and if you remember all the previous lectures, you may now know where I'm going. But don't worry, if you've missed it, let me explain. So as I said, Jesus is the only son of God, as well as the firstborn child of Mary and Joseph in the Jewish society, entangled with the Greco-Roman legal system. Now, do you remember the highly elevated status of the firstborn son in the ancient Hebraic community? You may remember the story of Jacob and Israel. In the story, it is clear that the firstborn son is the best asset of the family, so he gets everything, even all of God's blessing. And when your father passes away, that is the rule that you, as a firstborn son, get everything. So that you could carry the family name and present the family in the community. The secondborn son or any daughters in the family, you don't really count. The firstborn son, he only counts in the family. And if he is the only son in the family, if he is the only son, no daughters, no second son, he is the best of the best of the best assets a family could have for their own sake. The firstborn son, he only counts. And the Bible said, God sends his only son to die on the cross. And Mary and Joseph, they are offering their firstborn son to die on the cross. Now I guess you see the whole picture. The firstborn son died on the cross. That is, that is the worst and the most defamatory life event that could have in any Hebraic household at the time. Now enter the Roman Empire. The matter gets a little more complicated and even gets worse during Jesus' time. Now the whole Palestine is under imperial siege by Rome, and they were applying and implanting their Roman patriarchal legal system there. And according to Dr. Garcia the other day, in the patriarch Roman society, the father figure was the absolute authority of the entire household, and usually firstborn sons, they inherit the father's name and all the wealth. Which means, when the firstborn son becomes the fatherly head of the household, you will have, you will have all the wealth and the name the father was 
given to you, and you will have the absolute authority to rule over, rule over your family. And as you remember from Pastor Dominic, as a patriarch head of the family, you have the absolute right and privilege as well to kill your slaves and to abandon your own children if you didn't like them. Throw them out, throw them out on the street, let them die, cold, lonely, and in dust. Let them die. That is patriarch. And that was absolute right and privilege the firstborn sons will inherit. And there's a highly elevated status of the firstborn sons. So, firstborn sons, they must survive. They must grow well, they must thrive, and they must live a good life until they produce their own firstborn sons who will carry the same absolute patriarchal privilege and power to their own advantage. Now, the gospel says, and the Bible says, and the creed says what? Mary and Joseph, they are willing to offer their very firstborn son named Jesus to die on the cross. And beyond that, God, God is sending his only son to die on the cross as well. Which means by sending and offering Jesus, the only son, the eldest son on the cross, God the Father and Mary, the mother of Jesus, they are upsetting overturning the whole patriarchal system that the Near Eastern community and the Roman Empire created and cherished as the absolute foundation of their civilization. Which means by sending and offering the firstborn son Jesus, God was totally from the root subverting the whole patriarchal system of Jesus' time. As Dr. Doe and Dr. Payne say, the son meant what? The divine authority and divine son of God. And when God sends and God offers Jesus on the cross, he is overturning that whole patriarchal system. So basically, Jesus, the son, was upsetting and deconstructing the whole social and legal system. And Jesus himself, if you remember, when he was doing his ministry, he upsets and deconstructs the social patriarchy as well. To begin with, according to the Bible, Jesus had women disciples following from Galilee up to Jerusalem. During the first century, you know, that women weren't allowed to leave their homes and become disciples. But Jesus did it anyway. And when Jesus went to Samaria, he spoke with and restored a Samaritan woman through his great teaching. At that time, as you may remember, all other friends of Jesus would not speak with Samaritans because they thought they were unclean due to the historical circumstance. But Jesus did it anyway. And Jesus, the great son of God, when he was resurrected from the tomb, according to the Gospel of John, read the Gospel of John chapter 20 later, the very first eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus was not John, was not James, was not Peter. The very first eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus was a woman, and her name was what? Mary Magdalene. 
she was the one who witnessed the resurrection of Jesus for the first time. He went to the other disciples, male disciples, proclaiming, saying, preaching that Jesus is risen. Truly, he is risen. So according to the biblical scholars, Mary Magdalene is the first, possibly first female preacher or just first preacher in Christian church's history who preached about the good news of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. And as you may know, preaching is basically all about, when you boil down everything to one point, preaching is all about the resurrection of Jesus. And Mary Magdalene proclaimed the good news of God for the first time. So according to our Catholic brothers, do you have any Catholic brothers and sisters in this room? According to Catholic brothers and sisters, already 1,000 years ago, they honored Mary Magdalene, giving beautiful title, which is in Latin, Apostolorum Apostola. Can you say it with me? Apostolorum. Say it loud. Apostolorum. Apostola. Which means apostle to the other apostles. The Catholic Church, or the St. Benedict, the brothers of St. Benedict. Their nickname was the Community of Preachers. A community of preaching brothers, they claimed Mary Magdalene as their patron saint, patron saint, claiming what? We will follow the example of Mary Magdalene, apostolum, apostola, the apostle to the apostles. Let me spice it up a little bit for the girls. Mary Magdalene was the first female disciple to other male disciples who proclaimed the good news of Jesus. Now I hope you can see the whole picture. In the name of Jesus, the only son of God, the father and the firstborn son of Mary and Joseph, the whole patriarchal system is uprooted, deconstructed totally, and reconstructed for more egalitarian society in the glorious name of Jesus Christ, the Son. The Son Jesus does a really good job for humanity to free both men and women from the tyranny of corrupt patriarchy. That's why some 1,800 years later, a former black slave named Sojourn of Truth, you are going to read more about her this coming Wednesday, Sojourn of Truth, she would become one of the first female preachers in the American history following the great example of Mary Magdalene, Apostolorum Apostola. And probably that's why I believe the wife of George Fox, now you go to the University of George Fox, the wife of George Fox 300 years ago, Margaret Fox, she was really happy to become the active preacher and pastor of the early Quaker church. As a founder of Religious Society of Friends, she was called the mother of Quakerism, and she was a fearless advocate of human rights. And what's really great about her? She became a preacher and social advocate when the whole English society tell, told her what? You woman, you wife, you be silent. You stay at home, otherwise you will be jailed. 
and that really happened. She went to the jail cell twice, and still she said, what? I'm a woman, I'm a preacher, I'm the, I'm the believer and the son of God. That's what happened to her life, and she preached anyway, and she followed the path of Jesus Christ, the son only, transforming and reforming the whole patriarchal system. Now, my friends, my time is almost up, so let me summarize over what I said so far. Patriarchy, the dehumanizing and ethically misguided, and women and children abusing corrupt power that ancient androcentric boys have created to their own advantage, that must be destroyed. Under this patriarchy, we human beings, both men and women, have suffered a lot, one by one, piece by piece. We have suffered and lost our true divine-sanctioned humanity under patriarchy. Friends, this patriarchy must die. And when Jesus died on the cross, the only son of God, the eldest son of Mary and Joseph, when he died on the cross, and when he was brought back to life and proclaimed the new life, restoration, and transformation, both for men and women and all humanity, patriarchy has died. And we are, we are the other people who's carrying the same torch so that we can make this world slightly better, slightly better, so that the people living in this society enjoy the same good news, great news, great life in Jesus Christ. I believe that is our vocation, that is our goal. Wherever you go, whatever you do in the future, in your own vocation, you have the same Christ in you. That's why you are so beautiful. Amen. That's all I have for you. Thank you. <laughs>